If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Gress. Join me and others as we travel on common flight paths with our guests, gaining insights and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Welcome to another episode of The Warblers podcast. We've had a ton of fun putting this one together, but before we go too deep, I want to tell you about Galapagos Island finches. Back in the 1800s, Charles Darwin traveled to the Galapagos Islands, where he studied a variety of finches, and he noticed that from one island to the next, they all differed. Their beaks in particular were really distinct from each other. Noticing that the beaks appeared to be adapted for each island is how he figured out his theory on evolution due to natural selection. But what Darwin didn't maybe realize is how many cool beaks there are in the world, like way, way more interesting than some of the finches he was studying. So today we are going to explore some of the most unique and fascinating bird beaks in the ultimate battle of the beaks. We've tracked down experts from various corners of the world to tell you about the best beaks and what makes them so cool. This is a two-part episode, so we're going to feature a total of six beaks, and you will crown a winner. Voting will open up after both episodes have been released, so you can tell us which is the best beak. Now, time to hear from our very first beak expert. So I am Hazel Wheeler. I am joining you today from Guelph, Ontario. Uh, and I strongly believe that loggerhead shrikes have the best beak out there. Awesome. So let us know why you think that is. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, this was, this was a tough question because when you start thinking about birds and bird beaks, like there are a lot of really, really great beaks out there, but you know, I got to stick with what I know. And what I know is that shrike beaks are awesome. So I mean, shrikes, uh, they are, they're a songbird. They're about the size of a robin, but they're fully predatory. And this is shown in their beak, which really looks like the beak of a hawk uh, or an eagle. They also have this really great feature in their beak uh, right behind the tip on the top. They have this little notch that's called the tomial tooth. And this is a feature that they share with uh, falcons. And this little notch, so you might think, how can a little songbird take the prey that it does? And, you know, it does eat a lot of inverts, crickets, grasshoppers, and that kind of thing. But they can take prey up to 1.3 times their size. So this includes things like small mammals that you might find in fields. I've seen a a loggerhead shrike take out and eat a snake. Um, And these are animals that could really do some damage on these birds if they actually turned around. But this tomial tooth, what it does, they're able to really quickly sever the spinal cord of these larger vertebrate prey items to basically incapacitate it so that they have the ability then to carry it off and they'll use this, again, awesome beak to then impale it uh, on a thorn uh, and then they'll they'll use that to hold it while they rip off bite-sized pieces. So, you know, it's got the, the really impressive 
pointy part at the front that I can I can assure you is very, very sharp. It's got the tomial tooth that lets it take these uh, sometimes impressively large prey items. And then this kind of, I mean, not official tool use perhaps, but, you know, using these thorns and things to hold it while they use that sharp end to rip off the bite-sized pieces. It's just a really, really awesome feature that these birds have. Love that. Do you think that they use a thorn because they're because they're a smaller bird, you know, like a large raptor would just hold it in their talons. Is that what's going on there? Yeah. So this is the thing with shrikes. I mean, they they have the feeding habits of a bird of prey, but they are not a true bird of prey. So true birds of prey, they do have the strong talons and the strong feet that they use to hold their prey. But I mean, shrikes at the end of the day, they're just a songbird. They've just got little songbird feet. They can have sharp claws in their own right, but it's certainly not a talon. So they need to use that thorn or, you know, sometimes just wedge it in between the crook of two branches or something like that. So yeah, they don't have that strength in their feet. Cool. They might be the most punk songbird to like take down prey 1.3 times their size and impale it and tear it apart. Like man, vicious. And they just look really cool. I mean, the mask out there, you know, you, you see pictures of these birds in flight and they just look like angry little, angry little torpedoes. Hazel has been working with loggerhead shrikes for around 10 years with Wildlife Preservation Canada. Loggerhead shrikes are endangered. A loss of grassland habitats is one of the big drivers, but endangered species often have many complex threats. In 2022, Hazel's team found just 22 breeding pairs in Ontario. The recovery work they're doing is quite intensive, so you know I had to ask for more information. Really, at this point, the population is so low that um, one of the things that I do is I I coordinate a a captive breeding and release program. So we breed these birds in captivity with a bunch of uh, partners, and then we release the juveniles into the wild to kind of prop up the wild population. We need to keep doing the, this augmentation piece, but really what we need to do is be addressing migratory uh, survival. Because that's, I mean, any migratory songbird, you know, that's a, that's a tough life. So if we really want to be having an impact on this population, we need to kind of figure out what's driving uh, mortality during survival or during, during migration, and then see if we can fix that. Mm -hmm. So you're finding that you release these young fledglings and then just the survival rates after winter aren't great. Yeah. So, I mean, we're actually seeing, we're seeing our our release birds come back in higher numbers than, you know, we we generally see in the wild population, uh, which is great. But, you know, also breeding birds in captivity and releasing them, it's really intensive work. We don't want to have to do this all the time. We want the population to get back to a spot where it's just self-sustaining. So as much as we're seeing good release rates from the captive birds, we really need to figure out what is happening in the wild landscape so we can fix it. Mm -hmm. And where do they migrate to? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. (laughs) So yeah, um, there's this thing that I always talk about. It's the Shrike effect. And the Shrike effect is that Anything that can be more difficult will be more difficult. So this shows up in migration. So they're a short distance migrant and we are working on figuring out where they go during the winter. Uh, But it's tricky because there are a bunch of different subspecies of shrikes in North America. Some of them are migrant. 
Some of them are resident. Some of them some, sometimes migrate. And they all basically look the same. So it's really hard to kind of figure out where our birds are going, who's coming back. Are they going somewhere else and mixing with other subspecies? Are they uh, showing up in some other spot uh, in the States maybe where, you know, people aren't really uh, looking uh, for breeding birds? So we are actually, some of the birds that we're releasing, we're putting radio tags on them to be tracked on uh, the MODIS network. And then with that, we're hoping to to figure out exactly where our birds are going. But it's likely just kind of diffuse. So they might just kind of spread into like the northeastern states um, or down the eastern seaboard. There might not be, you know, a really strong connection between Ontario and, you know, one state in particular, um, which makes it uh, much more challenging, really, to, to kind of manage on the on the wintering grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That is quite a challenge. I hope you figure out where they're going soon. Thanks. Me too. <laughs> so once again, Hazel is working with Wildlife Preservation Canada with this Shrike recovery work. They've got some really solid partners who help with that as well. Locally, the Toronto Zoo and African Lion Safari, the Nature Conservancy of Canada, and the Kuchichin Conservancy. There's also lots of partners in the States. Uh, long story short, it takes a team to raise a shrike. So this is Loggerhead Shrike as contender number one for Best Beak, a vicious songbird that tears apart its prey with a tomial tooth. Now I want to take you across the world. We had a tough time lining up an interview with our next guest due to those pesky time zones, but Russell was kind enough to send us a recording with his pitch for the best beak. Hello, wonderful people at the Warblers podcast. My name is Russell Cannings, and I am calling to you from an empty classroom on the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm from British Columbia, Canada originally, but I've been living in New Zealand for around eight years, and before that... In 2008, I was lucky enough to um, spend some time in New Zealand as a university student. I found out that royal albatrosses and yellow-eyed penguins nest within city limits of Dunedin, so that was the only reason I really needed to head to New Zealand. And that really ignited a a sort of renewed fire and enthusiasm about realizing just how unique um, the bird life is around the world. And I'm now living on the North Island, where I get to spend a fairly good amount of time with the bird I would like to submit as the coolest beak. Now, I had to decide from a few because New Zealand is, has an embarrassing amount of riches when it comes to weird, wacky, cool beaks, right? We've got kiwis, we've got the extinct huia and its sort of sexual dimorphic beaks, the giant petrels, blue ducks, so many to choose from. But at the end, you know, there can only be one true king of the coolest beak. And so for me, that is the rye bill. It's in the name. It's got a rye bill. Nutu parore is the tereo Maori word for it. I was living in Dunedin on the South Island when I first came here, but there weren't any rye bills around. And I, had to, I did a road trip up to the North Island uh, in the winter of 2008, which is June, July down here. And I went to a place called Pukorokoro Miranda, which is like a big... Uh, it's a shorebird interpretive center, and then they have, you know, all these um, hides you can go to to see wader flocks. And in terms of rye bill, 
a significant amount of the world population, more than half of the world population probably, uh, winters in this area. Um, so you can see groups of thousands of them. What do they actually look like? Well, picture a cute plover, sort of a piping plover-like thing with a sort of silvery gray back, white underneath. They have a, a thin black chest band as adults and a little gray mask, and they move around in the, these big flocks, um, sort of running around, flying around in these wheeling, you know, wonderful flocks. Uh, but the biggest thing that you notice once you start studying them closely is that their bill is awry. Their bill curves to the right. It looks kind of like those, you know, curving needle nose pliers, right? So sometimes, depending on the angle, it might not look, if you see them from the side, it just looks like a normal beak. But when you see them front on, the beak curves to the right. And as far as I know, this is the only bird in the world with a consistently asymmetrical bill, a bill that curves laterally and always to the right. And I think there are very few examples in all of nature in terms of consistent asymmetry like that, right? And I think geneticists are still trying to work out how is it possible, like what's the trigger that's sort of always making this bill sort of shaped this way? Why aren't there left-handed bills? You know, all these interesting questions like that. So when I first saw them, I, I was just blown away by their cuteness, blown away by the coolness of the beak. But now I get to appreciate them on a much more regular basis because now I actually live about a 40-minute drive from Miranda, this um, wonderful shorebird place. Look it up. Come visit anytime. Let me know. Uh, where you can see, yeah, like I say, around between two to 4,000 of them in the winter. And there's only around 5,000 in the whole country. And that's also the global population because they are only found in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So what are they doing? What, what's up? What are they doing with these cool bills? How have they got these, these things? Well, they breed on the South Island. And the South Island is kind of like British Columbia, where I grew up, actually. They've got these big fold mountains, uh, these wonderful big valleys with braided rivers, kind of like some of the scenery that you'd, you'd picture sort of up in Alaska, where like these big wide valleys, stony peaks, glaciers, and then these rivers that gradually make their way to the sea. And these ribills nest on these braided river systems. And there's all these river stones there. And these beaks are perfectly shaped for bending over and plucking invertebrates like mayfly larvae from underneath the stones. So that's what they do is they stick their beak to get right in there underneath. You see them, their sort of feeding behavior is sort of they'll, you know, they do that little plover sprint, little trot, 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 sprinting along, and then they bend down. And instead of like picking something off the surface like a normal plover would, they have to dip their face. So it always, it kind of looks like they've got some food in their mouth or something. You know, when a bird has something stuck on its beak or something and it's rubbing it on a branch, it kind of looks like that. They're just constantly wiping the side of their face on the side of the mud, picking up little invertebrates, like little worms and things like that. And so on the breeding grounds, you might only see a couple at a time. But on, on these wintering grounds, they tend to gather in these big flocks. And they're fairly confiding, fairly um, friendly guys that you can get up to nice and close and study them. And they're just a really cool bird to watch. And of course, the beak, there's, there's just nothing else like it. So please do yourself a favor. 
If you don't know what a rye bill looks like, look at a picture right now. Be blown away by the cuteness. Be blown away by the bill. Book yourself a ticket to New Zealand to come check out these little dudes and all their friends and their weird wacky beaks. Thanks again for having me. Adios amigos from New Zealand. Kia ora. The rye bill. Head to the link in our bio for photos of these charming birds. Are they cuter than piping plovers? I'll let you decide. Leave a comment. Let us know. Russell also let us know a bit about their conservation status. There are around 5,000 ribills occupying about 60% of their historic range. So their numbers are low and declining. Like many New Zealand birds, ribills are threatened by invasive predators. One of my favorite facts about New Zealand is that they don't have native land mammals. It's not like Australia. There's no dingoes or koalas or, you know, kangaroos, things like that. New Zealand is a land of birds. The birds thrived and evolved without mammalian predators. You know, so they've got kias and kiwis and wekas and kakapos and more porks. And no, I'm not making these words up. These are all wonderful New Zealand birds. Essentially, New Zealand is a land made for birders. Unfortunately, invasive mammalian predators do exist in New Zealand now. Weasels, cats, rats, all brought over by humans, often intentionally. Much of the bird conservation work in the country is focused on removing those predators. Ribills benefit from that work. They're also threatened by an invasive plant species, lupins. A really beautiful flower, but it's unfortunately overtaking the riverbeds that ribills rely upon. So that is the contender for best beak coming from New Zealand, a country well worth visiting to check out those asymmetrical bills. This episode is sponsored by Birds and Beans. Honestly, this is my go-to coffee every morning. Birds and Beans was founded to help save migratory songbirds by roasting and selling only 100% Smithsonian certified bird-friendly beans. So if you drink coffee and want to help birds, check them out at birdsandbeans.ca. Free shipping in Canada for coffee orders over $45. Birds and Beans will even donate 10% from your coffee purchase if you order from birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers or use the link in the episode description. Birds and Beans, a richer taste, a richer earth. We are going to bring things back to Canada now. This next bird sort of has some things in common with ribills, but the beak is certainly not one of them. Hi, I'm Katja Kochvar. I'm joining from St. John's, Newfoundland, and I'm here to talk about why Atlantic puffins have the most incredible beaks. Awesome. Tell us why this beak is the best. So puffins, like a lot of other seabirds, are pretty boring in terms of their plumage, but they have a lot of really cool integuments that are only produced during the breeding season. So what we see with puffins is that in the breeding season, they have these really bright orange feet. They have this orange fleshy gape rosette that helps them open their beak really wide. They have ornaments around their eyes. And of course, they have this bright red-orange bill that is so characteristic of the Atlantic puffin. But what you might not know is that during the non-breeding winter season, we don't see any of this. So that rosette becomes pale and shriveled. The facial plumage and orange feet are totally darkened. Um, Those eye ornaments flake off and the bill is totally different. So the, the dermal plates fall off and most of the bill is black with just this little red tip at the very end. So that's what I've been really interested in getting to know is why this huge shift occurs in puffins. Um, But there's a lot of reasons why this beak is cool. I'm most interested in color. So their bill is based on a pigment called carotenoids. 
And this kind of color is really interesting because carotenoids have a lot of cool properties um, that make them interesting in terms of how they relate to a puffin's health and how and how well they're doing. Um, and so we, because of this, we've seen that there's actually some interesting relationships between the color of their bill and how well they raise their chicks, for instance. Um, but in other, other ways, puffin bills are really cool too. So you may have heard that puffin bills reflect in ultraviolet and they even fluoresce under, under blue light. So we don't necessarily think this does anything special, but it is super cool nonetheless. Um, another cool aspect about puffing bills is that they have these grooves on their bills and from ages one to five, so about until they become of breeding age, they actually indicate how old that bird is. So you can even tell just, you know, based on whether they have one, two, three, or four grooves, how old the bird is. So the puffin beak can do a lot of different things. Maybe the most obvious function is that it can hold a ton of fish. So the ma their main forage prey is capelin, and we've found that they can hold over 50, even up to 60 capelin at a time. Um, and that's pretty much the most of any in their family of all of the ox and alcids that exist out there. So they are really good at holding a whole bunch of prey at one time. Um, they also, you know, they use their bills for lots of different things. And one of the main things is that they use them in courtship displays. So they do this thing called billing, where basically two individuals will knock their bills together broadside and a whole bunch of neighbors will gather around and watch this display. So it's kind of a big performance. Um, and sometimes other individuals that are watching will come in and join the billing as well. So it's um, also has, a, you know, an interesting social function. It's also just very useful in terms of navigating their habitat. So puffins are, are animals that dig burrows in order to, to lay their eggs and have chicks. So the, the bill is really, really important for cutting into the soil when they're digging a burrow. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, the thing I've been interested in is how, what their color might actually signify. And so I found that coloration, especially in females, is related to features of their chick's growth. And we're not exactly sure why this connection exists. We have a couple ideas. We think that perhaps bill color reflects parental quality, perhaps how much the mom was initially able to invest in her egg or how much she's feeding her chick now. But it's also the case that bill color might reflect just general environmental conditions because they do get these carotenoid pigments. So the color that produces, um, the pigments that produce that color from their diet. I study puffins in Newfoundland, and there's plenty of them here, but they're also all found, they're found all over the North Atlantic. So they're found in Labrador, um, there's some in Quebec, there's some even in a colony in Maine that was reestablished after local, local extinction, which is a pretty cool story. They actually used mo models of puffins to bring them back to the island and reestablish a colony. Um, but they're also found in, in countries all across the North Atlantic. So they're found in Iceland, Sweden, Norway, Britain, Ireland, Scotland, um, among others. I feel like people are going to pull out so many different things. For me, Good. the billing sounds absolutely delightful. Like I can picture <laughs> David Attenborough just voicing over that kind yes. of behavior. <laughs> it's very fun to watch that part, the, the billing. I mean, it's true that like just this whole crowd of puffins will gather around them almost in a circle while the, and usually it's the two mates that are billing. So it's usually, you know, a pair that will be billing with each other. And that's why we think it's used in courtship. Um, but yeah, that bill is everywhere. <laughs> so cool. I also love that we can track their age by mm -hmm. their bill, like as though they're trees. That's yes. Cool. Right. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate though, because we can't really figure, we can't really necessarily age them after the age of four or five. 
Um, so the grooves are really only, you know, useful for those first few years, but I do think that's maybe useful in, and, you know, individuals maybe being able to identify who's of breeding age and who's not of breeding age, you know? Hmm. Um, that so, makes sense. Yeah. How long do they live for? Oh my gosh. They are quite long lived. So, you know, a lot of seabirds are pretty long lived. Puffins can live more than 25 years. I think wow. the, yeah, some of the oldest maybe was, was definitely over 30. There was one recorded over 30. In Newfoundland, someone um, recorded one recently that was 26, I think. So it was like, it was older than the person that was banding it, which was pretty cool. That's so cool. Yeah. I love, I love that kind of thing. So are there conservation concerns for this species? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so with puffins, they are listed as vulnerable. Um, and this is particularly the case in the eastern part of their range. So, you know, places like Norway and Iceland, uh, definitely Britain and Ireland are having, are really reporting severe declines in their population, low breeding success, which is all, you know, certainly of concern. Luckily, it seems like the North American populations are doing remarkably well, um, or at least comparatively well. So populations, as we've seen in Newfoundland specifically and, and Maine as well, are pretty stable for the moment. We might see that change, of course, with, you know, with, I mean, climate change is, is messing up where capelin are going, their main, their main forage prey. And that's, I mean, the phenology of that is really affecting things for sure. But yeah, it's kind of, you know, it, it differs depending on where the puff, like where puffins are. And I think that's probably why they're listed as vulnerable. But we are definitely concerned, especially in those eastern, northeastern populations. So Katja, do you have any groups or organizations that you'd like to shout out that are doing really good work for puffins? Yeah, so the main thing, and I, this was actually featured in National Geographic uh, last month or two months ago, was there's a couple of different puffin patrols out there. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but basically puffin patrols are dedicated to finding some of those pufflings, so the young puffins that have fledged that have been stranded on mainland due to well, what we think due to uh, light attraction. So I definitely want to shout out all of the puffin patrols that care so deeply about the species that are out there at night trying to rescue these pufflings um, and, you know, sec successfully set them free into the ocean. I, you know, we don't quite know how successful they are. I think we've, we've been able to, you know, we ban them when, you know, the puffin patrols will ban them when they find them. And we have found a couple later once they're adults. So, you know, I think it's still even important, even just, even if it just saves a couple, I think it's really, you know, it's a great way that the community gets involved and you can just see how much people care about the species uh, through that work. So I definitely want to shout out all of the, the awesome people that are organizing that and participating in those efforts. Oh, I nearly lost my mind when Katja called young puffins pufflings. Pufflings. Oh my goodness. One of the organizations leading puffin patrols is the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, also known as CPAWS. Well worth checking them out if you're in Newfoundland. So far, we've learned about three pretty impressive and unique beaks. The loggerhead shrike, a small songbird with a beak that you'd expect to see on a large raptor. The ryebill, coming all the way from New Zealand. One of very few species in the wild with an asymmetrical bill. And it always bends to the right. What is up with that? And of course, the Atlantic puffins. If you took them glow bowling, their bills would light up under the UV lights. Coming up next week, yeah, that's right, you don't have to wait too long for the next episode, 
Next week, we're going to have three more compelling best beak contenders. We've got one more species from Canada and two from further abroad. We even tracked down an expert from Costa Rica, if you could imagine who that might be. Following next week's episode, we will open up voting for the Battle of the Beaks. Who will take home the honor of having the best beak? Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the opportunity to toss your vote in for the top contender. We'll see you next week. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. Visit birdscanada.org slash warblerspodcast to make a donation today. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Kate Dogleash, Chris Koo, and Andrea Gress, with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep birding.